0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Things are always changing in the music industry, usually faster than we can keep up with. For example, did you know that YouTube recently experienced what's being called the adpocalypse? And did you know that SoundExchange recently purchased the largest mechanical licensing agency in Canada, the CMRRA? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Saban, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting MerchTable.com. Today, we discuss some of the many events that have happened so far in 2017 that will shape the face of the industry going forward. And we also get an update on the status of some of the legislation that will affect the music industry that's currently working its way through Congress. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Gray Ganaway of QuarterLab. Gray, welcome to The Future of What.
1: How you doing, Portia?
0: I'm good.
1: Glad to finally be on.
0: I know. We have a puppy in studio today, so I'm not going to listen to you at all or even look at you it's the hard, whole time. It's uh,
1: hard to focus right now. <laughs> I'm really
0: sorry. <laughs> She's due. Get out. Okay, I'll stop. Well, here, the first thing we're going to do is you're going to explain to me what QuarterLab does.
1: Sure. Cordalab is a video networking consultancy. We help brands and artists reach more people and earn more money through their video content.
0: So you run our YouTube channel, for example, Kill Rockstar's YouTube channel, and then you work also with a whole bunch of other people. You take care of their YouTube channels, and what else?
1: Correct, and we also help them manage their digital rights across a number of different platforms and help them earn money when other people use their content in their videos.
0: Mm. So you help people monetize their video content.
1: It's the simple way of talking about it. Cool. And also earn money when other videos use their intellectual property in those videos.
0: And how long have you been doing this particular, this is kind of a niche job.
1: Yeah, I've been doing it for about five years now.
0: Mm-hmm. And you have clients across the country?
1: We do. We represent Lil Wayne, Run the Jewels, The Roots, Nicki Minaj. So mainly hip-hop artists, but not exclusively hip-hop.
0: Yeah, Definitely. So now, the reason that you're in the studio today with me is that you're going to talk to us about something that you've noticed happening in the last few weeks,
1: correct? Correct. Yeah, the YouTube adpocalypse.
0: The YouTube adpocalypse. Yeah. So tell our listeners, what what in the hell is the YouTube adpocalypse?
1: Sure. So a uh, publication called The Times of London initially broke the story in late February. They found advertisements from the U.K. government running in front of terrorist-related content on Whoa, YouTube. So, my God. The U.K. government obviously wasn't stoked about that, and they ended up pulling their advertising budget from YouTube. And a bunch of major brands did the same. So AT&T, McDonald's, Enterprise Rental Cars, a bunch of major brands ended up completely yanking their ad spends from the YouTube platform. Wow. And as a result, everyone's making a lot less money per view on YouTube right now.
0: And that's continued. So even though that started like the end of February or something, we're still seeing that effect?
1: Correct. Yeah, some channels more so than others, but it's been a pretty widespread issue that's affected pretty much everybody on the YouTube platform.
0: Do you feel like people even know about
1: this? It's it's come out in public. So there's been a lot of commotion with YouTube creators wow. about uh, the decreased revenue.
0: Just for people, because I think most people don't really understand how the YouTube platform works. Like the the advertising dollars that come in from the big companies like McDonald's, the enterprise that you mentioned, that sort of goes into this big pool, right? Because it's not like you get to choose whose advertisements play on your content.
1: Correct. And that's part of the issue is something called programmatic advertising, where brands no longer necessarily buy specific placements. They buy specific audiences. So they go to YouTube and say, we want to generally advertise in front of people that are 25 to 35 years old, predominantly with these kinds of interests or tastes. And so YouTube goes and tries to do their best job at placing those advertisements on video content that will reach those audiences.
0: And have those major advertisers that you mentioned, have those brands come back to the YouTube spot or are they they out
1: of the space completely? A lot of them are sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what happens. Right. So it's kind of like a, a touch and go situation right now.
0: So basically the reason this happened is because so many large brands pulled their money out the pool was smaller. Is that why people are losing money? Exactly. Wow. And I, cause I would imagine that a lot of people who listen to the show who are like smaller type musicians, you know, people who are sort of getting started or, or sort of earlier in their career would not even really be aware of this and might be confused as to why they're losing
1: ad revenue. I think it depends on how important YouTube is to your overall revenue. Mm -hmm. People that depend on it heavily are very aware of the issue, but a lot of people that view this as just an extra stream of revenue probably aren't fully aware of what's going on.
0: Right, absolutely. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, Do you think that the big advertisers are going to return to the marketplace, or do you think that it's going to do something different?
1: I think that'll happen slowly. YouTube initially kind of threw the brakes on advertisements running across most content on the platform. The first thing they wanted to do was make sure that there wasn't more of a mass exodus of advertising dollars on the platform. Mm -hmm. And now they're slowly going through the process of identifying what content is brand safe and advertiser safe and re enabling that content for advertisements. So it's it's gonna be a slow process. I don't think things are I don't think revenue is going to become completely restored to the levels that they were at prior Mm -hmm. to this whole issue. But it's been a big wake-up call for everyone who depends on YouTube and video content to drive significant revenue.
0: Wow. Yeah. Now, what about, because I'm just thinking, you know, it's like YouTube has never been a massive source of our income at Kell Rockstars. It's just not for whatever reason. But, you know, I'm thinking about those people who have played the, you know, have the Minecraft
1: videos that are
0: making their <laughs> entire livings, you know, from the YouTube platform. Mm-hmm. So those people, too, have been seriously affected?
1: It's affected everyone on YouTube to some extent. I mean, wow. even the top YouTubers that have millions of followers, they've been very vocal. Some people saw their revenue drop to 5 to 10% of what it used to be. Whoa. Virtually overnight.
0: Wow. Yeah, so
1: it's been a massive impact. The music channels we work with have not been affected very substantially. Most channels on YouTube saw some kind of dip between March 25th and March 27th. Mm-hmm. And depending on the nature of the content, the rebounds have been more pronounced and and, more quick for for some channels and for other channels, they've kind of continued to operate at a a small percentage of the capacity where they used to be.
0: Wow. And this is the kind of thing that, could this sort of thing happen again? I mean, what was the whole, what was the truth of the terrorist whatever content?
1: It's not clear to what extent this was a widespread issue. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of companies in advertising use this for political purposes. Mm. Uh, a lot of companies would rather see ad dollars flow to, to platforms that aren't Google or YouTube owned. And then also, I think a lot of ad agencies are using this as an opportunity to try and negotiate better royalty rates with, with YouTube. Mm. Yeah, So it's definitely become a, a bit of a, of a political situation.
0: Well, because YouTube has always been political because of their sort of low payout rate in given the the landscape of the music industry in general, they've always been a little bit difficult. And I would say probably the biggest issue with YouTube is is the consent issues, is the fact that you know artists don't really have the opportunity to say no because anyone can put their content up. The only choice that creators really have in the YouTube space is to monetize or not to monetize, but not. they don't really have the chance to take it down, take stuff down because the DMCA, you know, takedown notices have
1: been notoriously, week. Well, content owners can take their content down off of YouTube. The issue is that it immediately gets re-uploaded. Exactly.
0: So if users in the YouTube space don't, I mean, if content creators don't really have the option to take down their stuff successfully, they do have the option to monetize it using Content ID. So can you explain how
1: that works? Sure. Content ID is a digital file recognition system that allows you to be notified when other videos use your copyrighted content. That could be in the form of songs being used as a soundtrack for your video, or that could be a video that uses your video content in the form of a mashup. Mm -hmm. If you have a deal with YouTube to use their content ID system, you automatically know when other people are using your content, and you have a few options with what to do with those videos that use your content. The two most common choices are either to monetize the video and allow it to stay up on YouTube, or to block it. So if you have access to the Content ID system or you have a partner company that represents your content and they plug your content into Content ID, then you can definitely block unauthorized uses of of your music or your video on YouTube. The problem is a lot of people don't have access to those tools.
0: And why is it that they don't have
1: access? because YouTube has to vet you and and approve you to use the program. Oh, interesting. And they're very guarded about that because they don't want people to come in and claim that they have rights that they actually don't.
0: Interesting. So your company is vetted, you guys can use content ID.
1: Exactly.
0: Right. And that's what that would be the plus of people using your service is that you have access to that whereas that's an one, individual wouldn't
1: correct. necessarily. Yeah, that's one of the advantages is we can monitor exactly who's using your content, let you know and let you decide if you want to block it or allow it to stay live on YouTube and just collect the, the money on your behalf.
0: Have you seen any changes over the last five years and how that's working? Cause I got, I, I get the feeling, and this is just totally, you know, my own five last five years feeling that there used to be a lot more sort of like people uploading content, like crazy and, you know, in unauthorized ways. And then people having to be like, knock it off, knock it off. I feel like almost maybe people have learned a little better in the last five years that it's not as frequent, but that's just my gut. Is that are you seeing that?
1: Not at all. No, it, depending
0: on... <laughs> totally wrong.
1: Depending okay. on the artists we work with, often when a track is released, say at 11 a.m. West Coast time, by noon we'll find hundreds of unauthorized uploads. Wow. There's a lot of people that make businesses out of just grabbing content and trying to be first to YouTube to re-upload it.
0: Wow, but then what does there, What does what's the benefit to them if it gets instantly
1: blocked? If it gets blocked, no benefit, but probably nine times out of 10 it doesn't get blocked.
0: Oh wow! There's enough
1: content that slips through the cracks for them to, you know, collect some ad revenue here and there, and, and in aggregate, it's probably substantial money.
0: Wow! Oh, there's so many crazy loopholes. I love it. But it's interesting as the, you know, as the music industry grows and changes every week. You know, there's always something new happening, and it's interesting that this is happening right now in the in the YouTube space because I think a lot of people have been sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop in the YouTube space for a long time just for that exact reason you know are people gonna continue to allow their music to be utilized in this way and not that there's that much we can do about it but you know except make a stink
1: sure yeah i think there's a couple of viable routes that youtube could explore one of them is obviously providing a more favorable revenue share to mm-hmm. the you know the intellectual property owners i don't see that as very likely but that would be a very welcome change for you know for everyone in the music industry Another thing that YouTube could improve on is their marketing for the YouTube Red service, the Mm -hmm. paid subscription service. So similar to Pandora and Spotify, YouTube has a free-to-the-user version that's supported by advertisements, and then Mm -hmm. they have a paid version where you can have all the ads stripped away, and instead of YouTube monetizing the content through advertisements, they monetize it from a $10 monthly subscription payment.
0: Awesome. Well, Greg Ganaway, thank you so much for joining us today on The Future of What? No problem. Aerosol Burns by Essential Logic. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and win a Future of What t-shirt. Want to hear more from top producers and musicians? Check out the Noise Creators podcast. Host and engineer Jesse Cannon talks with producers like John Congleton, Blake Harnage, and Casey Bates about their work, advice for musicians and producers, and more. Find noise creators wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit noisecreators.com. You're listening to the Future of What? We're talking to Mike Huppy, president of Sound Exchange. Mike, welcome back to the Future of What?
2: Portia, always great to be here.
0: Yeah, it's so nice to actually be able to look at you. We're in a real studio, (laughs) like human
2: beings. I know, it's not fuzzy over over telephone, it's all, amen. That's
0: great. So, I had you in the studio today to talk about this recent acquisition that SoundExchange made, and it's kind of a big deal.
2: It is a huge deal,
0: Portia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, tell us all about it. Who did you acquire?
2: So SoundExchange, or actually a subsidiary of SoundExchange, acquired a Canadian company called CMRRA. They handle the bulk of mechanical licensing on the publisher side in Canada.
0: Wow. And so what was the rationale behind this acquisition?
2: You know, to be honest, from the time I first began in this industry, I never understood why there was such a bifurcation. You know, we all talk about the two halves of the industry, publishing and recording. And it always struck me as a false bifurcation because the fact of the matter is so many of us out there in the industry are involved in both parts of the industry. So this was an attempt to try to you know, cross the Rubicon, marry up data and admin capability on both the recording and the publishing side to try to do something different and do something better for the industry. So, what is this going to lead to for you
0: guys? I mean, how how are you thinking that SoundExchange is going to use this?
2: You know, initially out of the gate, SoundExchange is still going to do the bulk of what it does really well. CMRA is going to continue to do what they do in Canada, but I think well, the the promise of this of this union bringing these two things together is the ability to marry up the back office between publishing and recording, offer folks the ability to administer some new products, you know, new, new types of platforms that maybe they haven't administered before. There'll obviously be efficiencies too, you know, but by, by combining both of our expertise we'll have some efficiencies. But the real beauty of what this may become is imagine, you know, if a DSP could handle mechanicals and their sound recording neighboring rights all in one spot and take care of all of that. For example, imagine marrying up the data that we both have where you can have um, a sound recording and publishing information, songwriter, publisher, artist, record label all in one spot. There's a lot of promise for, for that type of solution.
0: So Spotify rather notoriously or famously just recently settled a lawsuit with Melissa Ferrick as the plaintiff. We've spoken to her on this show before about that lawsuit. And that lawsuit was really basically about exactly this, right? Mechanical royalties for Spotify plays.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, Spotify, you know, they they settled that lawsuit. And prior to that, they had a a settlement of sorts with the NMPA. Right. I don't think there was actually a a lawsuit in that, but it was a settlement of claims. And it's an example of why the system's broken. You know, we sent a man to the moon four decades ago, five, six decades ago, and we still don't (laughs) know who wrote a song sometimes or, you know, or who played the background, you know, guitar uh, vocals in, in, in a given recording. So the Spotify lawsuits are kind of a perfect example of why the system's broken. Here you have a company that's purportedly even trying to do the right thing, and it's it's just so hard to get the coverage you need when it comes to music. DSPs have so many places they have to go to get the rights to provide the product they provide. Our purchase of CMRA and bringing these two things together will help maybe start to bring that together on the back end.
0: Right. And one of the cool things about SoundExchange, and I think you've been talking and thinking about this a lot for the the whole time you've been there, but I don't know if every single other person has thought about this, is that you guys are really at this point like the biggest database of clean metadata in the U.S., you know, for the most part, because you service everybody, you service majors and in indies, you you work with artists who are not signed to a label, you know, you work with everybody. So you have this massive database. And this is the kind of thing that we're thinking forward, we could put this data to even better use than it's being currently put to.
2: That's absolutely right. Because we do what we do in the, in the US, the bulk of what we've done up until now, you know, we're obviously diversifying and doing more things. But the bulk of what we've done up until now is administer this government license, this statutory license. What does that mean? That means if you are getting any play or at all commercially relevant in any of these digital radio services, you're probably in our ecosystem and we probably get data related to you. So we, several years ago, one of our top priorities was to really develop the best, most robust sound recording database in the world. Is it perfect? No. Show me a database that's perfect and I have a bridge that I want to sell you. <laughs> and we and we have a philosophy that we really, we source it directly from the rights owner. We don't get it from third parties. We don't get it from people who know people who know people who used to know people. We have rights owners give us their data. We clean it up. If if we find a conflict, we work that through if we see a problem we go back to them and say can you fix it that re-report it to us and it closes the loop so that you're reporting back to the rights owners the very stuff they reported to you imagine if we can now get that out to the dsp's and that's what they're reporting to us and it closes the loop for everybody so we have the best sound recording database and you know when you think about publishing and you know if you're a publisher or a songwriter and you're working with a dsp or some other user They typically don't report songs, they typically report recordings, right? So when Pandora or Spotify or SiriusXM deals with publishers, they're probably sending them recordings out of the gate. So the fact that we have a really good recording set underlying that is a very good first step even towards the publishing issue.
0: Absolutely. And I think that this whole issue is complicated. I mean, we probably always need to touch on this when we talk about it, although at this point it's probably really boring for you. <laughs>
2: because it's like Never boring. <laughs> never boring.
0: The problem the the problem with metadata is metadata, right? It's it's that it's that people have to deliver proper metadata or else you guys are hamstrung from the very beginning. And so the way that SoundExchange does it where somebody sends you metadata, you clean it, you send it back, you say, is this correct? Well, if it is correct, there's these three problems and these three other companies say they also own this song, let's say. And then we all have to figure it out ourselves is amazing because I mean, speaking as a record label owner, we're not perfect. You know, people aren't perfect. And when they put together their metadata, they're not perfect necessarily. And it's, it sometimes takes that. I, sometimes I need help. You know, I get lists from SoundExchange, and I still to this day will get something from SoundExchange right. where I'll be like, oh, wow, hey, I, you know, this is something I didn't realize we had a problem with. I need to look at this. Well,
2: and that makes sense, Portia, because I'm guessing you didn't get into the performing industry as you, as you have and are, or the record business to have really great metadata. It's not what drives, <laughs> you know, performing artists. It's not right. what drives songwriters. And you know what? We don't want that to drive any of them because songwriters, artists their best use to our culture and our society is to go out there, be creative, bring us great music. So it makes sense that metadata isn't the first thing they think about. You know what would be really good is if we could figure out how to how to get this all established right out of the gate, you know, right in the studio. If Imagine if you walked out of every studio where any any recording was ever made or ever, any song was ever performed, and you knew at that moment how all the rights should be divided. We're not there yet, right. and I recognize that's not how it works, right. but... But, you know, we're constantly pushing towards that because I would love a world where in 10 years we're not even talking about this anymore. Imagine if you and I sit down here 10 years (laughs) from now and it's really about like your cool next act or the new album or what's happening with this new digital company providing the public with a great product that we can't even imagine right now. And no one's even talking about metadata. That would be great if we're there in a decade.
0: That would be amazing. Although you and I are kind of in the same business right now, which is the education business. And that's really what we're doing with this podcast. And what you guys are doing at Sound Exchange every day is just trying to get people to understand how the whole thing works. And right. I think one of the reasons that you, that we constantly have metadata problems is every day there's a new band walking into a studio who doesn't understand how what they need to know what they right, need to right. have in terms of making their metadata clean. I mean, I didn't know it when I was making my first record and I was 28 or whatever. It's like I didn't know anything about this. So, and then I didn't really know enough people who knew it either. So, we have to put these resources out there and just keep going and going. I know that's a bleak future for you 10 more years of
2: <laughs> explaining no, no, ten, how this works to everyone. 10 years will go by in a flash, you know. <laughs> and and it's and that and the problem gets even more complicated because you have, on the recording side, you might have artists and labels and non-featured and, you know, featured, And then you've got the whole publisher side where you have songwriters represented by publishers and they also have someone doing their mechanical rights and maybe someone else doing, you know, their performance rights and maybe somebody else handling their sync. It's not a streamlined system, you know. If you were going to build this business from scratch and set up all the systems, you probably wouldn't build it the way we, we have it now. It may have made sense 15 20 30 years ago you know in the time of cds or lps or piano rolls but it's a lot more complicated now and the thing about the digital world first off there's no international boundaries you know everything's global the digits no 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 border and you have it's not where you have either a performance or a recording you have all this variation in between there's downloads to streaming to tethered downloads in addition to CDs for those that are still buying CDs. The the paradigm that was designed three or four decades ago just doesn't fit today, and, and we're just trying to move it into a better place for the digital world. You know, we call Sound of Change, we like to say we are digital natives. We have the luxury of being born into the digital ecosystem for the digital ecosystem. Like, that's why we were created to do this. And we definitely recognize that that's a benefit and something we should be thankful for because it's a lot easier when you're born into it than trying to adapt something that, that was created 80 or 90 years ago.
0: Right. And, you know, I say all the time on the show that this this music business is basically a patchwork of historical accidents. <laughs> yes. It. And we all have to deal with that every day. We just yeah. have to be like, okay, well, here we go. So you guys are lucky that you were created specifically to solve a problem in which we already we do have the tools right. to do that. That you weren't like, hey, we're, in ten years we're going to invent some tools. So for now, ha, have a stick. <laughs> <You
2: know? laughs> right. There's this thing called fire. Yeah,
0: you guys, it's going to be really cool. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it's not even just on the business side. I know Sound Change is based in Washington, and obviously. Much of the country is not. But even in Congress and even in Washington, you're seeing this type of irrational business concept starting to make its way in. You know, you're know, you starting to hear people talk about the need to have streamlined data, have people have access to data. If we want these new business models to work, People need to know who owns what in what territory. You know, that's one thing. You say that even you are, are still correcting your metadata now and then. Metadata changes all the time. I mean, every day catalogs of recordings or songs are bought and sold or, you know, or you switch from one aggregator to a different aggregator. It will never be perfect. It's a, It's a never-ending task. But it's gotten to the point where all of these policy issues that bubble up in Washington – are even talking about things like databases and metadata and ownership. And, you know, the fact that there's people in Congress using the four letters ISRC is an interesting thing. Wow. That's a big deal. I think they're using some other four-letter words, too. (laughs) uh, I probably won't mention Like help? (laughs) That isn't what I had in mind, but that is one. (laughs) I think that would work.
0: So do you guys have any intentions of acquiring any U.S. publishing mechanicals organizations, or do you want to move into that more
2: No, I mean, that's, that's not, you know, first off, we, we, this was the first step to purchase CMRA with an idea of sort of marrying up the data. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's a Canadian organization, which is, there's a lot of, obviously, synergy between Canada and the U.S. There's a lot of North American interests, you know, as North America. So, you know, our first, now that we've uh, acquired them, we're sitting down and figuring out how can we use these assets in the best way possible. And, you know, we're not looking to move into any particular specific business right now. We Our ultimate goal is basically developing a flexible platform for the future. You know, if you think about the types of business that are occurring in the marketplace, there are new and different configurations out there that publishers and recording artists and record labels and even even DIY folks could possibly do combinations of rights imagine it's it would be a lot easier to license sound recordings and publishing in the same in the same breath multi-territory deals you know other things that people are thinking of and in order to do that you need a sophisticated back office you need to have someone who can validate the reports of use and track the metadata and deal with conflicts and we just we're not looking to lock anybody into any particular business model or lock any clients in a particular long term deal. We just wanna be there to offer flexible solutions so that people can come up with these new configurations that may or may not work. So, you know, I suspect that there may be some people that are interested in in U.S. mechanicals work, and we'll certainly be looking into that. We'll, we're obviously looking to help them do better in Canada. What they do, give you know, with our with our, I mean, they do a great job. CMRA CMRA is a great job, has a great reputation. They have the eighty-five or ninety percent of the market share in wow. Canada. Mm-hmm. They are the ones who represent a lot of the policy issues for publishers. So CMRA has a great reputation, but obviously we are we have a big platform, a, a big database, a certain level of sophistication based on what we've done over these past three years, and we'll, we're hoping to help them do do better things in Canada, too.
0: So what else is coming up for SoundExchange? What have you guys got on the horizon?
2: Well, let's see. One thing that we've finished this past year, you know, we've been building this new, very flexible platform, and we stood up the last the last part of it. So, you know, we have a fully deployed platform that is really open to do many, many things. People know us and the bulk of what we've distributed so far is this, this government license, the statutory license called Section 114, you know, for internet radio and non-interactive radio, digital radio. But we are already using that platform to do other things. We are administering over a dozen direct licenses already and we're looking to do more. You know, again, if if people want to go do whatever they do in the marketplace, we just want to be there to help provide the back office. We are administering some of the class action settlements that you've read about, in particular pre-72. The Mm. big pre-72 settlements with the majors and with Merlin, we're paying out the artist's share of a portion of it. We are doing data integrity work with some very big DSPs where they send some data to us. We help clean it up and match it and give them better information. So we're doing all of these things. Another thing that we've done recently is try to spread ISR, the, the gospel of ISRC to the world. You know, ISRC, I assume most of your listeners know, but ISRC is sort of the unique serial number for a sound recording. And we believe the whole point of having that is so the money flows the right place and people know who owns what. So we actually have on our website, you can go there and you can look up. We have our whole ISRC database made available to the public. And we're trying to expand that and maybe do an API and working with some beta testers at the DSP level to try to start that back and forth flow of data that we talked about. So those are just some of the things, you know, that, that we're working on. And now with CMRA, maybe we can bring some of those solutions to the publishing world. Wow. This is very exciting. So. I love it. Like I said, it, there's a lot of creativity in the marketplace where you have different types of entities coming together to try to offer more services. But this is really the first time in history, at least that we're aware of, that a collective management organization like ourselves has united the administration of sound recordings and publishing under one roof. You know, there's a lot of publishing-publishing combinations or recording-recording combinations. Sometimes there's international combinations on the publishing side. There's some examples where you have a U.S. publishing group and a European publishing group. But as I said, There's this belief in our world that it's the Rubicon. You can never cross from recordings to publishing. And we think it's the first time they've ever been brought together under a a CMO like this. And it just makes ultimate sense. I think I've mentioned this to you before. You know, I teach this class at Georgetown Law School. And the very first day, I have a chart. It's called Music Law. It's a class on music law. And I have a chart, you know, that attempts to sort of talk about the music industry. It has these four quadrants. And it talks about what the different parts of the industry do. And it, you know, as as their eyes start to roll back in, in the back of their head and I bring them back around and they finally, you know, we get to the end of class and I say, by the way, you're all lucky this is law school and not business school. Because if it was business school, need you drew anything that looked like what's on the board, you would fail out in a heartbeat. Because as a business matter, it doesn't make sense. And even this whole this whole, I mean you know you 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 probably your record label you probably dabble in publishing and own some publishing right you're a performer you probably have some songwriting many of the labels we service as sound exchange including the biggest and and many many indies all have publishing interests many of the performers we pay are also songwriters so this concept out there that there're these two siloed parts of the industry has never made sense to me and and this is just an attempt to try to break that down and try to bring them together and make everything work a little bit better. We want to get to that world where we're not even talking about metadata.
0: <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> Mike Happy, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me today. It is a
2: pleasure being here. Always happy. It's a great podcast and really love that you're doing it. And we love we love everything that you're trying to to make happen through it. So thank you. Thanks for coming on
0: The Future of What? Thank you. That was Ruler by Marnie Stern. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways, like when the comedian Kurt Braunohler wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail-order store. KRS Loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Daryl Friedman of The Recording Academy. Daryl, welcome to The Future of What.
3: Always great to be back. Thanks for having me again, Portia.
0: So we had you on today because we haven't had an update from The Recording Academy in a while. And I know you used to be in charge of their advocacy efforts specifically, and now your role has expanded. Do you want to give us a little insight to start off with, with the efforts that the Recording Academy is making towards advocacy right now?
3: Absolutely. In fact, what you mentioned about the expansion is really a reflection of the place that advocacy holds at the Recording Academy. We had advocacy as a separate department from our membership division, and we decided to merge those two because really our best advocates are our members. And what our members ranked very highly as an interest for them and a benefit for them was to get involved, to be advocates, to see change happen, and to be part of that process. So now the division is actually advocacy and membership, and they're combined unit writing together. And I think it just reflects the change of how artists and music creators and songwriters are seeing their roles as advocates. So that, that leads me to what's been happening, and actually there's been a lot of activism, a lot more engagement by members of the Recording Academy. We've seen literally thousands of people lobbying on behalf of the issues that matter to music creators at the Recording Academy, and we'll be doing more of that throughout the year. So we just finished Grammys on the Hill, and we'll be having Grammys in my district shortly.
0: So one of the big pieces of legislation that we were all working towards last time we did this was the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. Is it still called that? Is that, where, is that still the same bill?
3: Yes, it was reintroduced this Congress. It was actually reintroduced just about a week before Grammys on the Hill this year, because the members of Congress who were sponsoring the bill wanted to make sure that the advocates coming into Washington had a chance to lobby on, on Tom's behalf. So the Fair Play, Fair Pay bill is still in play in Washington, and it's actually got great momentum. It's at about 50% more co sponsors than the same time last Congress when it was introduced. Wow. We feel like this is the time that momentum's growing for a couple of reasons. There's also the matter that the chairman of the committee, Chairman Bob Goodlatte, who oversees all copyright as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the House, he is in his final two years in that role, his final Congress. So this is the period of time when I think you'll see a lot of action and conclusion to some of the legislation that's been talked about for a few years.
0: Yeah. And do you want to just give everybody who's listening a refresher on what the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act covers?
3: Sure. The Fair Play, Fair Pay Act really just seeks to bring fairness, as the name implies, to the music landscape. Uh, The main component of it is uh, fixing an age-old, decades-long exemption that corporate radio has that they don't have to pay artists anything. They can use any song they want, any recording they want. They never have to get permission, and they never have to pay a penny. So corporate radio, like iHeartMedia and other major conglomerates, are earning $16 billion a year playing music and don't pay a single penny to the artist that created that music. The Fair Play, Fair Pay Act says that the, the radio stations should have to pay just as radio stations do in every other developed country in the world. We're literally the only developed market economy that doesn't have this right for its music makers. And the, this, we think this is you know, only fair, and of course, people should be compensated for their work. There are other provisions in the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act that deal with other important matters like making sure that artists who recorded before pre-72 are treated fairly because the law has some ambiguity there, and also to make sure that everybody's paying by the same rate standard. When a government body is setting a rate for music, they should use a market standard that reflects what the fair market would provide if it wasn't being set by a government body. So those are the major provisions, but the main thing for fair play fair pay is just closing that corporate radio loophole and making sure that artists get compensated when their music is played on the radio.
0: What other issues is the Recording Academy dealing with legislatively right now?
3: Well, there's one other major piece of legislation that is in play, and then there's two others that have actually made some great progress. The other music-specific bill for producers and engineers and anyone out there who is working in the studio making music, we have the Allocation for Music Producers Act, or easy to remember for short, the AMP Act. And the AMP Act would, for the first time, put the producer's role in law, codified in the U.S. law, and would ensure fair, transparent, and quick payments to them from performance royalties on digital radio. But there are other laws that affect music makers that are actually not specifically about music, but still deal with the music space. And we were pleased that just about a week after Grammys on the Hill, a Copyright Office bill passed that would establish a new method for selecting the Register of Copyrights, the head of the Copyright Office. Now, this sounds very D.C., and very wonky and a little bit inside baseball, but for music makers, it's a very important position. Because the head of the Copyright Office doesn't just register your copyrights, but also advises the Congress on issues of copyright and how it affects music makers and other copyright holders. So how that position was appointed is important to music makers and should be important to all of us. The new librarian of Congress removed the last register who was very friendly to music creators And there was a concern that the next register of copyrights might not be so fair-minded when it comes to copyright. So this bill, which actually passed the House, would make this position an elevated position, a presidential appointee with confirmation by the Senate, and give a lot more stakeholders a chance to weigh in and make sure that the person who's heading the Copyright Office actually believes in copyright and is fair-minded about it. Finally, there's one other issue that I think is important to many of your listeners, That, again, is not a music licensing bill specifically, but it's a spending bill. And that's the funding for the National Endowment for the Arts. The NEA in past decades has been threatened, and the arts community, including the Recording Academy, have done a good job of protecting the NEA because we believe that's a great incubator for music and the arts in the United States. When the Trump administration came in, one of their goals in their budget was to eliminate that. Agency, actually eliminate the National Endowment for the Arts. Thanks to lobbying on behalf of many of the groups that we work with and lobbying at Grammys on the Hill, we're able to keep the NEA fully funded. In fact, funding increased slightly in this fiscal year, and now we have to just make sure that we maintain that throughout the Trump administration because there is, the White House has, in fact, for the next fiscal year's budget they put out, called again for the elimination of that agency. So, two pretty major victories right after Grammys on the Hill the NEA funding increase and the Copyright Office Bill passing the House. But there's more work to do, and we hope our advocates will get involved and continue to move the ball forward.
0: Daryl, you said earlier that members are the best advocates, and I want you to focus on that a little bit because, you know, for the people who are listening who don't know what the Recording Academy does other than the Grammy Awards, I think it's important for them to understand that, you know, to become a member of the Recording Academy, it doesn't just mean you get to vote for the Grammy Awards. It means a whole bunch of other things. And it sort of puts you in the position of being an advocate for your community and your, you know, I mean, everything, your scene, your genre, your town, you know, you you can really sort of, it opens a lot of doors. So do you want to talk a little bit more about what membership entails?
3: Yeah, when you become a member of the Academy, your voice is amplified. It's not just you anymore. You're part of a community. Of 23 plus thousand people who are all sharing the same goals and aspirations for for music makers, and when it comes to advocacy, which is one of the many benefits of being an academy member, of course, the Grammys and other philanthropic activities that we have. But when it comes to advocacy, it really is a way for people who feel like maybe they don't know how to make change happen, maybe they don't feel like they could call and get a member uh, meeting with their member of Congress. It gives them a broader voice. So. As a member, you can become part of many of our programs that amplify your voice, connect you with other members of our community, and make sure that your voice is heard loud and clear. For example, we have a program called Grammys in my district each fall, where we had thousands of people all across the country. When Congress was in recess and home, we had our members going to those congressional offices, knocking on the doors and saying, Congressman, hey, we are constituents. We are the people that elect you. We are the people that hire you. We're the people that can fire you, and we believe that you should be promoting sound music laws when you go back to Washington. And that's a very powerful experience from both standpoints, both for the member of Congress who sees his own constituents coming, making time out of their day to come to their district office, and a great powerful activity for the member of the reporting academy who maybe couldn't get that meeting on their own, but because they're part of our academy, our community, we can set that up for them and make sure that their voice is heard.
0: And that's been very, I mean, that's been a very successful program because I've been involved with it since, the, since it started. And I mean, we had like double the numbers last year than the year before, I think.
3: Yeah, it really went from 100 the first year to about 1,000 the second year to 2,000 the third year. And we don't know what to expect the coming right. in, in about four <laughs> months. But it really just shows, it shows a couple things. One is that the effectiveness of advocacy, We actually get more co-sponsors now and more support for bills at that program than we do for any other program we do year round. But it also shows that music makers are becoming more engaged and more active in defense of their livelihoods. And we've seen that over the past few years where music makers are really starting to pay attention, becoming very knowledgeable and educated about these issues. And when the time comes, taking action, literally taking time off from work and going to see their congressman at home and making the case for their community.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, so that's an exciting thing. And there, you know, one of the things I like about the Recording Academy is that you guys are a very much a living organization. I feel like, you know, from what I understand being on the board in the Pacific Northwest, there are trustee meetings every year and at those trustee meetings people really, rep- you know, they bring the views of their group and they argue about stuff and things change. You know, it's not monolithic and it doesn't just say, stay the same year after year, which I think is pretty exciting in this day and age. Like, I pretty am, I'm pretty excited about any example of a body that can, like, discuss things and then change <laughs> rather than just be entrenched in their own positions forever. Not that we would know anything about that.
3: <laughs> right. And that never happens in Washington. No, not no, at that's all. No, true. I mean, we're a very democratic organization. And just to give you a great example of this that was very meaningful for us, for years the Grammys has had a album of the year category. And there's a record of the year category. People always get these confused. Writer of the Year category goes to the artist and producer, and the Song of the Year category is for the songwriting itself, which goes to the songwriter. And sometimes it's the same recording that can win both, and sometimes it's different recordings. But the Album of the Year category had always gone to the artists and the producers. And the songwriting community in those chapter boards, where everything starts, sort of our laboratory, they said, "Hey, you know, well, the songwriting is of course critical to the album's success. The songwriter should also get rewarded with a Grammy if that." Wins Album of the Year. They brought that to the National Trustees. The Trustees discussed it, in committee, brought to the full board, it just passed, and we announced a couple of weeks ago that songwriters are now the recipients of Grammys for the Album of the Year category. It's democracy in action, and it, the members always get it right. We're very proud of the work that they do and the dynamic changes that we have in our Academy.
0: Yeah, it is. It's pretty. It's a pretty cool organization. I've been. I've enjoyed being a, a part of it. And I think, you know, when you get to the grassroots level, it's particularly interesting. We looked at some graphs the other day, some charts about membership across the whole organization and demographics and age and race and everything, gender. And it is a really interesting organization in terms of, you know, it's like obviously in the Pacific Northwest, we've got a much higher percentage of Asian Pacific Islanders than we uh, than the rest of the country. But that's because our chapter includes Hawaii. <laughs>
2: Right. That's right.
0: But it's just it's just a it's just a cool organization and it's very inclusive and very democratic. So what do you guys have coming up? I mean, what are what's sort of on the horizon for you guys? Big picture for the Recording Academy, you know, down the road.
3: Well, for our advocacy, at first, the main thing we're gearing up for is the Grammys of my district program on October 18th. So all of our members will be notified shortly that that's the day that if they can take some time We will set up meetings for them and put them in groups together to go visit the members of Congress during the recess when Congress is at home and when they are really there to listen to their constituents. So we're hoping that will be a major initiative. Again, as as I said, we went from 100 to 1,000 to 2,000, so we don't know how many people will do it this year. But my dream is someday for all 23,000 members of the Recording Academy to be out there knocking on doors during Grammys in my district day and making that difference.
0: That would be amazing. Well, Daryl Friedman of the Recording Academy, thank you so much once again for coming on The Future of What?
3: It's always a pleasure, and thanks for all the great work you do, Portia.
0: That was "Go Home" by Summer Cannibals, and that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Essential Logic, Marnie Stern, Summer Cannibals, and of course our theme song, "Mind Your Own Business" by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com/the-future-of-what, and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McClain. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.
4: Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.